you can't ignore efficiencies, right? It's mm -hmm. like if you if you want to create the Mona Lisa, but it doesn't arrive for another twenty years, that's <laughs> kind of not cool, right? Right. right. Um, and so I'll take a Picasso next week. And so it's around saying, how do you understand those trade offs? Uh -huh. Is it time that that yeah you know, we want to be first mover? Is it quality because we want to have this awesome experience? Uh -huh. Is it features? Friction. It's a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. They end up spending a lot of time ruminating. I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and a professor in the Stanford School of Engineering. I'm interested in organizational friction. It's that drag, that feeling of walking in muck, the problems that slows organizations down makes them flail and fail. This, then, is the Friction Podcast. Today, our guest is Dominic Price, head of R&D and work futurist at Atlassian. Atlassian develops software tools for developers and project managers, products like Jira, Confluence, and Bitbucket. Atlassian's grown to about 2,000 people, and they're distributed in teams that are all over the globe. We've invited Dom to this podcast because he sees beauty in chaos, beauty in friction. So this is a, a podcast that gets at the upside of friction, not just the downside. In fact, he believes that infusing moments of friction and inefficiency can actually increase agility of organizations and the teams within them in the long term. Welcome to the Friction Podcast. We're excited to hear more about Atlassian and Dom's uh, sort of magnificent and checkered career. Thank you very much. But so one of the things that's, you know, in reading a little bit about you, uh, you were talking about how much you, like you value messiness. Yeah, scrappiness. So, scrappy. So yeah. so yeah. So this kind of and chaos. Chaos. Okay. So chaos, messiness. Okay. So so <laughs> how do you? It, it, you might want to tell tell me a story or two. How do you tell the difference between times when you've just got, um, well, I can swear, a pure clusterfuck. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a mess. Or um, it's actually constructive, yes. sort of chaos, messiness. So, yeah. so how do you tell the difference? So the, the first answer is it's difficult because they look and smell very similar. Ooh. Right? The signals on them are very, very similar. The distinction for me is, is kind of purpose, right? Which is a bit of a cheesy word, but yeah, I, I, can be, I can be messy for the sake of being messy. Uh -huh. Or I can be messy because my environment's messy. So the, the kind of uh, the, the, the idea we go for is if our customers, customers if our consumers, uh. if they can adopt a technology and disrupt themselves, if they can move quicker than us, mm -hmm. we will forever be behind. So we have to have an organizational structure or disstructure that actually, that actually embraces their world. Otherwise, we're trying to standardize our world okay. for our own benefit and not for theirs. So for me, chaos isn't just anarchy. Uh -huh. It's saying, how do we have enough freedom and then how do we have guardrails so that we know where we're trying to head to or what we're trying to achieve so that we've not got 2,000 people running in completely different directions? Let's go back to these guardrail things yeah. that you're talking about. Um, can you give me an example of some specific guardrails you put on teams, you put on products that enable them to have some corralling without micromanagement? Because that's what I'm sort of hearing. You yeah. Constraint, 
but you don't give them micromanagement. Correct. Yeah. So those the constraints are in there to actually help them be more creative. Um, ironically, and we did an experiment with this mm-hmm. when we give some of our most genius teams a blank piece of paper, mm-hmm. they give us a blank piece of paper back. Yeah, <laughs> like the, with no constraints, it's really hard to be creative. And so uh, we actually invented a play that we've called Disrupt, which is all around how do you add disruption by diverging for a period and then converging, then diverging, then converging. Okay. And we do that as an exercise without tech. We take them off site. It's in an arty space. So it uh-huh. kind of challenges their frame of reference. And we give them a shitload of post-it notes and they go berserk. And then we give them a constraint. And you just watch them panic. And it's actually healthy for them to go through that exercise of, well, you can't do that. Like, well, we just did. We so just give did me that. an example of a constraint that you have imposed on it. You have no funding. Okay. You have no people. A competitor <laughs> just came out with that product. So, okay. So <laughs> I like those constraints. Yeah. And how, how would they rise to the occasion to? Well, and, and this, is, this is where we see the true creativity, right? So it's, mm. it's uh, yeah, my personal opinion is it's really easy to be creative when there's no consequence. Right, right, right. I can just make up any, any kind of crap, right? And you go, oh, you're really creative. Well, that's not creativity. So what we do is we let them go completely divergent. Like they've got all this freedom, uh-huh. and then we add in the constraints. And what we're looking for is how do they use each other to navigate oh, okay. through that? So the, the designer who may be more emotionally intelligent and mm. thinking about the experience wants to focus on that. The engineers stood there going, I just need to know what language you want me to build it in, and I'll start building. Right? The product manager is still not sold on what the problem is and who we're solving it for and how we're going to get there. And so we're getting these differences of opinion, and I want to see them argue. I want to see the debate. Okay. I want to hear the swearing. I want to see the angst, the face pulling. I want all the emotion to come out because that's when we know, even though we spend a fair bit of time uh, doing that, uh-huh. what we land on is going to be awesome. I have no idea what that thing is. And we let them navigate through it. And it's hard, it's hard to watch uh-huh. because you want this utopian world of everyone agreeing. And there's this perception in the world that collaboration is all about high fives right, and right. everyone getting on. And it's bullshit, right? Great minds don't think alike. Full stop. Tell me what it looks like. Since I, I assume that things aren't always perfect because every there's no perfect organization yeah what are the warning signs you look for that you're gonna that you're gonna have an inefficient team mm. you're gonna have a team that's that's just sort of floating in sort of yeah. endless casts what are the warning signs that you look for a couple of things one is uh i have to i, I look for an unbalanced team so if, if i've not got a mixture and it's cognitive diversity i care about more than any other form okay it's is are there people in that team with a different frame of reference if there's not, I might as well switch them off because okay. they're just going to agree on day one and they'll just go and develop whatever they want to develop. And that's not healthy for me. So the first signal is is not having a balanced team. Okay. The second one is is more around the rituals. So a lot of our rituals in work are quite visual. Okay. Uh, the stand-up, the, the sparring on a whiteboard, all right, the heated discussion. What, so, okay, so let's start unpacking them. So, yeah. uh, so good, what's a good stand-up look like? A good stand-up is a speedy five, ten-minute they all stand around. What did you do yesterday? What are you doing today? What are your blockers? Bang, bang, bang. And you do that for agile software development? You do that for other things too? We do that for most teams. You do that for everything? Not for everything, uh-huh. but, but I would say for most teams and certainly a lot of non-product teams okay. follow that tradition. Because it's an easy process, right? And not right, only right. is it easy, it says you're having a meeting. So the minute you can demonstrate to someone, you have a 15-minute gathering in the morning uh-huh. with a can of spam and it saves you an hour-long meeting where you sit down and go through an agenda, they'll mm-hmm. sign up for that shit instantly. Because the payback is, is like fivefold. It's right. like awesome, easy. 
So okay. that's the first ritual that I look for. So the, what about, what's this sparring thing you're talking sparring. about? Sparring, right. So our entire office is white walls. Uh-huh. Not white boards, but white walls. Uh-huh. Um, if, if I see people constantly sat headphones on doing their work, I momentarily am happy because it means they're getting shit done. Uh-huh. And then I'm momentarily unhappy because they are not doing anything with anyone else. And so if I'm not seeing that tension, uh-huh. positive or negative, it's, it's also got a cost. But if I'm not seeing that on a semi-regular basis, I uh-huh. start to wonder, is that team actually collaborating or are they just executing? Now, there's phases where execution's fine. I'm not saying every day they need to be fighting. Focus but and flare type yeah, thing. Yeah, knowing yeah. where they are. Knowing where they are. Okay. And then the third one is quite a subtle one, which is actually communications. So we've got quite a culture of, of blogging, of sharing, of, uh-huh. of, of telling stories. If a team is not telling stories, I start to get worried because if the whole messaging is insular and they uh-huh. haven't got successes and failures to share, then I'm worried about what's going on. Has someone built a fortress? And if so, what are they hiding? So, so what, what, it's really interesting to hear that example because one theme I would say you keep coming back to is that you do a whole bunch of things if you just had a spreadsheet might drive somebody nuts yeah. and, and the short-term inefficiencies and the things that you can count uh, – that's some of the keys to your success. So any other things you do that naturally look like they're inefficient, but actually help in the long term? I think there's a lot of things that, that on face value, I mean, ship it, you know, our innovation kind of once a quarter, every single member well, t- of tell, staff. Tell me about ship it. So yeah, 24 hours. Um, so basically once a quarter, um, every single member of staff gets 24 hours to work on whatever they want. Full stop. That's it? And people look at me and go, every member of staff? Goes, yeah, why not? Everyone's got ideas, right? I, I hire smart people. They're so, curious. Do they, they know, so they know it's coming up. They know yep. the chip a day is coming. Chip do a day they, is coming do up. They, do they plan for it? Like, do you do some design advance? They like, will claim they don't, but the sneaky buggers <laughs> are always sharing their ideas well beforehand. Plus, the 24 hours isn't a natural constraint. But, but ultimately, uh, one of our values is, is be the change you seek. All right. So I'm uh-huh. saying to people, I want you to drive change where you can. Okay. If I don't give them the freedom, freedom being time, to practice that, then that value might as well be on a poster and just thrown in the bin, right? Okay. It's one of those corporate values that, that's just a waste of time, unless you give people the opportunity to actually live it. So we always try and find ways of how can we live our values. Mm-hmm. Be the change you seek, play as a team, bang, ship it. Once a quarter, Thursday, 11 o'clock in the morning, uh-huh. everyone stops work. I do not care what you're working on, you stop doing it. Uh-huh. You then have from 11 o'clock Thursday morning to 11 o'clock Friday morning to work in a team on whatever you want. No rules, no constraints, complete freedom. The one rule uh-huh. is at 1 p.m. on the Friday, three-minute pitch to your peers okay. where they get to vote for you. And the prize, yeah, because like all good things, you need uh-huh. a big, big cash prize, uh-huh. is a trophy and a T-shirt. <laughs> they get a trophy and a T-shirt. So it's bragging rights. It's you know, in front of my peers from all over the world, my idea got voted the best. Okay, so so that's that's the winners. Let's talk about the losers because because <laughs> this is a great way. Because to me, what you're doing is you, uh, ship it day is a nice way to introduce variation. Where yes. uh, and I assume most ideas people come up with um, fail, or many of them. Correct. So how do how, what do you do with all that compost? How do you like make people not feel bad? How do you like what do you, what do you do about that? So the the big kind of philosophy for me behind ship it is is the freedom, and I really want people to push boundaries. Uh, so the worst thing I can do is ever punish, whether that be real or not. Okay, ever be seen to punish anyone for not succeeding. 
Okay. Right. So, so whilst the winners are celebrated, we also celebrate some of the failures. Okay. What did we try that didn't work? What can we learn from it? Uh, so we had one uh, a while ago, one of our relatively new starters, uh, who's a, a development manager, uh-huh. um, did his ship it, and he went to put his code on a repository to open source it. And uh-huh. He accidentally uploaded our entire Google directory. <laughs> Email addresses, names, oh, no. everything. That's a, he only that's found out because someone went onto the repository and said, I think you've accidentally uploaded your Google directory. He instantly pulled it down uh-huh. and checked. No one, you know, nothing spurious had happened. But he came in that day and he wrote a blog, uh-huh. assuming it was going to be his last day. Because <laughs> he's like, I- "I'm in my first ninety days. I have just uploaded uh-huh. our Google directory to the web. Uh-huh. It's been indexed by Google. It was on long enough to be indexed." He's uh-huh. like, "This is it. This is. Uh-huh. I mean, talk about sackable offense. That's right, not right, even right, on the. Right, right, that's right. on a different list." Um, he came in, wrote the blog, and I think within two hours, he had over four hundred comments of people going, "Ah, oh, let me tell you about my fuck up." <laughs> And so there's there's suddenly this ethos where you're there going, hang on, there's nothing I need to hide under the rug. Okay. There's nothing I need to brush under the carpet. And in fact, the more we become storytellers about this stuff, right. the more we understand the risks we can and can't take. Like, that's just a good thing to do. So we don't hide that stuff. Like, we so, celebrate well, so, well, so the way that uh, we would put in some of the stuff we've written is that you've got um, a forgive and remember culture. Yes. I assume that if he did that, did something that egregious um, every day, that he yes. wouldn't last different that discussion. Long. <laughs> yes. yes. So uh, that's actually quite actually So we, quite we don't like to perpetuate incompetence, but we do like to forgive failure. So you've got two CEOs, which you know, the sounds like model, yeah. it, it sounds like a a potential friction inducer where they undermine one another, they stab each other in the back, they create confusion mm. by giving different messages. That's sort of my negative stereotype. Uh, <laughs> so how how do you overcome, or how do they overcome that problem of not introducing friction and confusion? Yeah, um, it's I think it's a challenge every day, and certainly as we scale, it becomes harder, right? Because you know, when you're a smaller organization, you can both be across everything. Oh, right, right. And then you're going to get to a point where actually that doesn't scale anymore. A um, couple of things that, that I've witnessed them do that really help. One is they both have very different skill sets. And so oh. it's very rare that you find them treading on each other's toes because they do naturally approach things from a different angle. Uh, one of the interesting rules that they have, and, and Scott, uh, who's one of our founders, explained this philosophy to me once, if they, do, if they can't convince the other one, uh-huh. then it doesn't go ahead. Ooh, so so, there, so there's a mutual respect there, which is you know whilst whilst Mike is uh, uh, way more kind of I would say way more visionary, producty, uh-huh. and probably much more of a risk taker. Uh, Scott's a lot more methodical, and so it's great. So so Mike can have this way out there idea, but if Scott can't see a path for us to get there, then then maybe it's not going to get the legs. And similarly, Scott can have a great idea, but if Mike can't see huge value in it and who's the customer, like they actually naturally spar. Because they come at things from a very different angle. So, so will they argue in front of others, or do they kind of go into um, behind closed doors and then come out with a Bob? Like all good parents, they do some of it in the uh, in the bedroom and some of it at the dining table. <laughs> I think there's there's definitely some stuff that happens behind <laughs> behind closed doors, and I think that's that's uh, right. Okay, you right. want you want to have the freedom yeah, 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 and yeah. psychological safety to do that, but also. You know, it, I, I've been in sessions with them when they're happy to challenge each other, uh-huh. and that for me. Is, is such a healthy thing because if they do that, I right. can do that. Right, right, And right. it makes everything all right. And similarly then, yeah, we have this thing called a, a PBT, a Product Brains Trust. So uh-huh. every Thursday, the pair uh-huh. of them block out their entire day and different product teams go and pitch. Here's the thing I'm working on. This is what I'm thinking of. And here's what the end solution looks like. And it's a giant sparring session with the founders. 
It's awesome. It's scary as hell. Uh-huh. Because you go in there petrified because you're going in front of you know, your, your parents to put your shiniest, best idea up. And uh-huh. their job is to rip it to shreds. And they do it in the most polite, friendly, cordial manner. But I leave there kind of half feeling down and half feeling spurred on. Because their perspectives bring better value to my idea. Uh-huh. But I'm also gutted that I didn't go in there with a 100% solution. I never will. Okay. So... I read kind of interesting blog post you wrote recently. Um, a little more talk, excuse me, a little less talk, a little more action. Yes. Quoted uh, various uh, famous people, yes. Sir Richard Branson yes. being one of them. So is that one of the things that's instilling you to think this way? Is is that, uh, and so so what do you do? So, because a lot of the stuff you, you've described is under constrained conditions with te- deadlines, but a lot of talk and a lot of kind of screwing around. Yeah. So, so how do you get them to action? So I think that to, to get to action, first thing we need to do is to make those trade-offs vocal mm-hmm. and, and visual. So Ooh. when we make those trade-offs, like we're, we're not unashamed in, in presenting those. Uh-huh. We are doing X, we're not doing Y. We are going after this competitor or this market instead of that one. Okay. And, and when you have that, you piss a few people off because you're going to have 100 sure. or so people and you're all going, no, 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 trust me, this is the, and you're like, sorry, this year our focus areas are here. And, and, and it's kind of disagree and commit is uh-huh. a new muscle that we've built. We didn't used to have it because huh. when you're smaller, agreeing's easy. Right, 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 right. But you get to a certain size and you've got this diversity of opinion. You can't all agree all the time. So it's how do we disagree and commit? Because that commitment turns to action, which turns to results. Otherwise, you spend constant debate and we've all been there. And we still have this in pockets. And it's, it's around saying we're right. getting into that zone again. We're doing the debate. How do we disagree? How do we disagree? But commit. You've got a lot of distributed teams. Yep. So uh, at least the research on distributed teams, as I understand it, is the further part you get, both culturally in terms of uh, time zones, the harder mm. it is. Yeah. So how do you actually get those teams to work together so that they're in sync with one another mm. and then in sync with the, the purpose, which you argue is so yeah, important? Yeah, so, so it's easy. You, you listen to everyone and then decide the Australians are right. No, it's, um, <laughs> well, it's, well I, I believe in hierarchy. That would not be all win, bad. Win, win, win. <laughs> um, I, I think what, one of the things that we've had to get better at, um, it, uh, it's something I don't think we were awesome at probably 12 or 18 months ago and we've had to improve, is who owns the decision. Ooh, so, so talk we, more. So we, we found that we were moving a lot towards consensus decision-making or everyone had to be in the room. Right. Or you'd get to the hour of the night, you'd get to the end of the 90-minute meeting and you'd go, right, uh-huh. should we meet again next week? It's like, well, what did we just achieve? Right, there's, right, right. There's some really expensive people in that room and, and oh, well, Bob wasn't there or Huggy wasn't right. there, so we couldn't make the decision. Well, well, let's just have the meeting with them then. So we started to see a lot of frustration and tension with decision-making and it was slowing us down. And so now that is probably one of the first discussions we have, which is who's the, who's the driver of this? Uh-huh. Who's the approver, which is the actual decision maker? Right. Who are the people we will consult? We, we care about their opinion. We will listen right, to right. them. Who are the people that will be informed? That is a one-way communication. Right. I will inform you. You may say something back. I will not hear it. Right, right. And actually having that conversation is way more valuable than any decision that ever gets made. <clears throat> because we get to say to people, I want you to contribute. But your role here is you're a contributor. So one, one thing that I'm also hearing as subtext is that uh, you've added, a well, to go back to constraints, a little constraint um, and a little structure to the way that you run meetings. Is, is that part of, is that, 
Yeah, we're trying to, it, it's it's easy to become a time sink. I mean, in my entire career, uh, meetings are probably the biggest bugbear of my entire life, uh, right? They're just, you know, you, you get to the end of the day and you have I've, I've had eight meetings. I've done no work. Right, right, right. And now I've got all the actions I got from those meetings, but I'm in eight more meetings tomorrow, so I'll, I'll get to them at the weekend. So meetings, if they're productive and constructive, are awesome. Uh-huh. Know, knowing what the job to be done is. What is the purpose of this meeting is is huge. And certainly with our distributed teams, it's about saying, if you've got minimal time overlap, Mm -hmm. how do you use that time for the most valuable thing where you do need to discuss? And how do you leave your time when you're out of sync for doing your individual work, your deep work? Okay, so let's go back to distributed teams. Because, I mean, the research on distributed teams is it's, if you look at it, it's pretty ugly. I mean, like, mm, it it's, is. It's, it's really hard for having them to be efficient. There's, uh, there's interpersonal problems. The list just goes on and on. So uh, you talked some about what you do, but, but what's the signs that um, you look for that, like, things are really messed up and it's, it's time With to get With distributed teams, it's easy because there's just no communication, right? It's the first thing you see is the walls come up. In a distributed team... It's way easier to hide than in a co-located team. Right, 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 right. Right in a co-located team, I expect you to I come can, into work. I, 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 you're I ignoring me. You, right? well, you're not. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in a distributed team, it's easy. So uh-huh. you know, and, and that's where we've we're constantly evolving. Like we've certainly not solved a pattern for distributed teams that I would yeah, rubber I stamp I don't and, think and sell. Any magic. But we've we've got some patterns in there that I find useful. So a couple of things we do. We often for the very first part of the work, which we tend to call the spike. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's when the major decisions, sort of guardrail type decisions, are being uh-huh. made. When we're doing that original spike, we will fly people in and we'll co-locate okay. for a week, for two weeks, for whatever time. A couple of things happen. First of all, making those decisions face to face a lot easier, uh-huh. a lot quicker. Second of all, you go out at night, you have a drink, you go for a walk, you go uh-huh. for a bike ride. When you break bread together, you actually build a relationship that you can maintain when you're apart. Mm-hmm. If your relationship is only ever apart, I think that's a lot harder to maintain a relationship where you've never had that face-to-face. So, that, so one, of, one of our colleagues, Pam Hines, has been studying distributed teams more than 20 mm-hmm. years. And the first thing she says is get together at the beginning of your relationship, it's, yeah. and no matter how much it costs. Yep. Even if, even if it's two days, it's worthwhile. Two weeks is really is yes. okay. So it's interesting that you're doing that, and, and it's it's yeah you know, again it's it's selfish and selfless. Right, it's selfish for me because it means that I have a way higher chance of success. Right, right, and it's selfless because it's an investment, and 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 when it, it's not an investment, you can say here's the ROI on that. Because you know you've got flights and accommodation, right, you've right, right. people around, you've got people with families. Like it's not always easy. But when you do that, it actually tends to be a net benefit to all the individuals and the team and the organization. So you got a magic wand. Yeah. You can get every leader in every company to start doing something to get rid of friction. I think for me, the the biggest thing for any leader is how do you context switch between being a leader and a doer? So, so my example there is, I think most of our leaders at Atlassian spend 80% of the time in their function, in uh-huh. their area of subject matter expertise. When they come up for air to be a leader of a broader group, that context switching is really hard, and they huh. spend a small amount of time there. And I think over time, that can be quite dangerous, because all you bring is your subject matter expertise, you don't bring your breadth. And I think a commodity or, or a, a very valuable thing in the future workplace uh-huh. is the generalist that can connect many people. And I fear we are losing generalists. Okay. Well, so it, it is interesting because, I mean, I, just to restate it, that, that rare ability to connect uh, the big mission to the little tiny things I'm doing right now. Uh, 
Um, Bill Campbell, who was the uh, the coach of the stars, Steve Jobs, uh, the Google people, every he used to say the rarest ability was the ability to connect the big things yep. to little things. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Okay, yeah. now let's flip this around. You got your magic wand, and you can stop uh, managers and leaders all over the world from doing that one stupid thing that just drives you nuts. Noise. Um, uh, noise. Yeah, so one of the, one of the side effects of having a, an open culture by default um, if I write a blog today uh, and I hit publish, 2,000 people get to read that. That's 2,000 people that can comment. They can tell me whether I'm right, uh, tell me whether I'm wrong. They will have heated debates about that. And and sometimes I'm like, that is not a valuable use of your time. I just, <laughs> like, you are driving me insane because you are, you are focusing and festering on something that is a low-value transaction. Now, that is a, a byproduct of having openness. Right, right, right. you get a lot of noise. We're constantly trying to work out how do we get more signal and less noise. Yeah, yeah. That's but you good. have to just accept that you pay a tax for that noise. Okay. I'd love a magic wand just to switch it off every now and then. Okay. So, uh, Dom Price, thanks for uh, joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you. You're lively, and it's been great fun. Thanks for having me. The other thing that I hope you will take away from uh, Dom's perspective is the notion that it's really important to find comfort in the gray areas, things like inefficiency, frustration, ambiguity, that ultimately lead to speed and, and lead to better customer experiences. If you want to find out more about Dominic Price and his perspective on work, he's actually quite a prolific author, in addition to being uh, quite an active executive. Uh, we're going to send you to some of his posts about uh, how to deal with the, the bot economy and how we're not ready for it, uh, how to deal with uh, bosses who aren't very good, and some stuff on diversity he's written, and also some basic research that shows the more women you have on your team, the smarter the team. Please join us on our mission to improve organizations and work by sharing your stories, tips, and tricks, all those lessons you gleaned from the front lines of the workplace. To reach out, find us on Twitter at eCorner. Also, please rate and review us on iTunes to help spread the word about this podcast. Next week on the podcast, we have Rebecca Hines, who I've known since she was an undergraduate at Stanford. We've written papers together, and she helped edit the book I wrote with Huggy Rao, Scaling Up Excellence. She recently came across an old spy manual from World War II known as the Simple Sabotage Field Manual. We are going to talk about how it applies to friction in organizations. Rebecca's imagination always stuns me, so tune in next week for a really fun episode. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Designing Organizational Change Project. Friction is produced by Eli Shell and Rachel Jilkowski. Michael Pena and Monica Yort are the outreach team. Danielle Stusi is our designer. Sarah Khan and Davor Sankovich provide web support. And a big thanks to our guest, Dominic Price. I'm Bob Sutton. Here is today's final tangent. And so, like, we, we have posters all over our office uh -huh. that remind people, don't fuck the customer. Like, our customer is our number one element and asset in our entire world. And it's not, 
customer first or think it's, about the customer or care about the customer. It's, it's, don't screw them over. Don't screw them, Without don't screw them, them we, the like, we do not exist. 